Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast, brought to you by Subway's $6 barbecue pulled pork Mighty Melt combo. Try it today. What the Clippers are trying today, as discussed in our last podcast, is building the NBA's next super team, it appears. For now, not quite a super team. They've got two stars in tow. An MVP finalist and the reigning finals MVP, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. What we're going to do today, we're going to bounce around the league and spend approximately two minutes on each of the 30 teams and discuss where they kind of stand and and where they go from here as the dust settles on the offseason. Still some free agents out there, obviously, but for the most part, things are settled. So let's start with the Clippers, the odds-on favorites to win the title. Fellow co-host Joe Wolfon in the studio with me. What up? Let's get going, man. What What are your thoughts on the Clippers that maybe we haven't touched on yet in the Kawhi podcast? Is there a weakness that stands out to you? Is there a reason they're not going to fulfill their you know, roles as favorites? Um, I don't know if there's anything we didn't touch on, but to me it's just uh, the, the guard play is like a little bit shaky and the interior defense as they're currently constructed would give me a little bit of pause. Um, you know, they've got Zubach and Harrell in the middle. Neither of those guys is a particularly proficient pick-and-roll defender. Uh, I think this team is going to be very solid offensively. I mean, probably elite offensively, in fact. And their their perimeter defense should be fantastic. And, and I think they're going to be able to put together some closing lineups that are very strong on both sides of the ball. Um, I think maybe they close with like a smaller look with Harrell at the five. But they, I mean, we'll see. Like they, their offseason isn't over yet, and maybe they can add a big guy with a bit more defensive chops and uh, another ball handler potentially. But, you know, I mean, no team is perfect, and this team is about as close to complete as I think any team in the league is. So um, that's, that to me is where they stand. And they have easily, I think, the best crop of wings of any team in the league. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned no team is perfect. That's always the case, but that's especially the case going into this season, right? Like, I know we've talked about it ad nauseum, but for real, this looks like the most wide open title chase, certainly that I can remember. And you might have to go back to like the late seventies for for a season when it seemed like parity would reign supreme the way it will this year. So yeah, you're just looking for, like you said, the most complete team, and I guess the team with the fewest weaknesses. And I think that is this Clippers team. I think if you're looking at star talent, yeah, the Lakers the Lakers are in the running, obviously, for having that that honor but you know Kawhi and Paul George as a duo can go head-to-head with anyone in the league right now defensively there won't be many teams if any that are better you know I trust Doc Rivers to concoct a pretty good offense around those two guys closing lineups will be good they're gonna have scoring off the bench I just I don't see really like a fatal flaw in them given the way the league is shaping up right now and obviously so much you know injuries can happen there might be there might be a potential dynasty in wait that we don't even see coming right like the last time it actually did look like the title chase might be wide open was the year LeBron left Miami to go to Cleveland and it was like well the Cavs look pretty good with him Kyrie in love but for the most part it looks wide open and the Warriors became a 67 win juggernaut that kicked off five straight finals so maybe there's one of those teams out there but until then until a team does prove that that they are that unit I'm going with the Clippers at least to start yeah but I would agree with you and say they're not like the favorite with a bullet right you know it's not like they're head and shoulders above the rest of the league uh i think they're a, a sort of tenuous favorite right now all right the team that would have been head and shoulders above the rest of the league had Kawhi leonard committed to them are the los angeles lakers led by lebron james and anthony davis in a league as wide open as we've been ta- saying it is with two guys that good and again health you know notwithstanding assuming they stay relatively healthy 
do you think the lack of depth will matter to the Lakers? I don't know if it's even so much the lack of depth as just the lack of guards. Like, who are the guards on this team? Like, it's KCP and Rondo yeah. and, I mean, Danny Green. But, like, those guys aren't, you know, there's no, where's the pick and roll point guard? You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I understand LeBron is basically going to be a point guard for a lot of the time that he's on the floor. So maybe it, like, it's definitely not as big a deal for the Lakers as it would be for another team. But I would just say, like, the lack of guard play with the Lakers as they are currently constructed is worrying, to say the least. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And and I do think depth will be a factor because I'm as big a believer as anyone in the fact that I do think LeBron's going to have this crazy kind of renaissance of a year and be in the MVP conversation. But I also acknowledge that the guy's going to be 35 midway through the season yeah. and is coming off a year in which he suffered his first major injury. I'll acknowledge that Anthony Davis, though he actually has been pretty durable the last few years, in general... You look at his career as a whole, and, and, and last year I know it wasn't necessarily injuries that derailed him, but that still goes into you know what his body's used to playing, and he hasn't been the most durable guy in the regular season, and also he's never had a long playoff run, so like we don't know how his he'll hold up, especially if they do have to log heavy minutes without much depth. So again, I think you know in a seven-game series, most of the time I still bet on the team that has LeBron James and Anthony Davis taking up 40% of the floor space, yeah. but... So much of it could depend on matchups, and their matchups might be dictated by the fact that LeBron misses, I don't know, 12 games, Anthony Davis misses eight games here or four games there, and it maybe that's the difference between being first and being third or fourth and who they play in the first round, and then whether they have to go on the road in the second round. I know, you know, in a Clipper series, it wouldn't matter because mm-hmm. home is road and road is home, but yeah, I, I do think depth will matter, not necessarily in how the team looks, but in in how their matchups might be affected as the season wears on. I just say, you know, the most successful LeBron James teams have always had a second ball handler on them, uh, like a high-end ball handler, whether it was Dwayne Wade or Kyrie Irving. And obviously as a fantastic co-star now in Anthony Davis, but not a guy who is going to be handling the ball a lot. So I think that makes a big difference. And I also just think like, why would you like go after Rondo and put your eggs in that basket or KCP? I mean, I know there's a clutch sports thing, but like, you know, they could have thrown an offer sheet at DeLon Wright or Tyus Jones, and I think either of those guys would have been a better fit on this roster, you know, than Rondo or KCP. So that's disappointing. I think their defense is still a bit of a concern, given, you know, LeBron James's regular season defense over the last couple of years. Kyle Kuzma, you know, is still a minus defender in my eyes. And, you know, they sign Cousins, which I think, you know, they get him for the minimum, which is great value. But uh, again, like when he's on the floor, they're going to be vulnerable to one five pick and rolls. And I just, I don't know if they're going to be able to patch enough holes. Like even with AD there, I think uh, I'm a little concerned about their defense. Yeah. And as great a defender as Anthony Davis is, we've seen examples of bad defensive teams anchored by Anthony Davis. Like he, literally last year. Exactly. He He's a great defender, but he's not. And it sounds weird because I, I think he does have the potential to be, but he's not necessarily the type of transcendent defender where you just know you plug him in and you're at, you know you're going to have a passable defense. Like, it, that's just not who he is, even though he is great. All right, two LA teams are done. If we're going to bounce around the league, we should have the champs somewhere near the beginning of the show. The defending champs are going to look a lot different because the finals MVP is gone. Danny Green is gone. The Raptors have made some interesting moves, though. They seem to be betting on length, defense, and guys who can't necessarily shoot but have upside. Um, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, Stanley Johnson joining the mix after losing Kawhi and Danny Green. What are your thoughts on those moves and where you kind of see the Raptors shaping up in, in the East pecking order? 
I don't dislike the moves. I mean, I think, you know, they get a couple of relatively young wings who are both very stout defensively, you know, who are, you say upside. I mean, I don't know. I think the upside is like, can they develop a passable jump shot? Right. And I think with Stanley Johnson, it's like we have four years of evidence to suggest that he can't. He and, probably will not. And Hollis Jefferson, the same thing. But Hollis Jefferson at least can do a, like a little bit of stuff with the ball in his hands. He's a better playmaker for sure. Yeah, he's got like a herky-jerky drive game that I think is actually surprisingly effective. He's a good cutter. Uh, he's a good screener. He's a really good rebounder for his position. Stanley Johnson isn't any of those things really. Like offensively, he's been close to a zero for his entire career. So I'm less enthusiastic about that move. I mean, he is a very solid defender. I like RHJ a lot. Uh, and I think, again, like I... I, I don't have a ton of faith that that jump shot is going to come around for him. All he really needs to do, I think, to be a plus player is to be able to like hit, say, 36% from the corners on stationary jumpers. So we'll see if he can do that. But, um, you know, I, I think where Toronto is weak right now is at the two spot. Having lost Danny Green, you're basically thrusting Norman Powell into that starting two role unless you want to start super small with Fred Van Vliet at the two, which I don't think they will because I think they prefer to have him coming off the bench and, and, and having... And close games out, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, but but even so, you know, they're looking at having Powell play, like, 25-plus minutes a game, and uh, that, I mean, that could be great for Norman Powell's development. He has sort of been blocked for his entire career, but I think the reduced role has been good for him, and he had a quite efficient season last year, in large part because I think he wasn't asked to do too much, so... That would be my big concern from, for Toronto is like just the two spot. And, and then the other big question, obviously, is to what extent do they want to run this back and try and, you know, make a run at a three or four seed, which I think is possible for them. And, you know, to what extent do they just say, look, we, we had our championship run. We don't want to get stuck being a middling <laughs> playoff team. We're going to see what we can get now for Kyle Lowry, Marc Gasol, Serge Ibaka. I, I think they're going to be an elite defensive team. I think it's almost impossible not to be, given the makeup of this roster. I think Pascal Siakam is good enough right now to be the best player on a like 3-4 seed in this Eastern Conference, not the best player on a contender. I think they have enough, If depending on how long they stick around this season. I think guys like Kyle Lowry, Marcus Gasol, Fred Van Vliet will ensure that they have that kind of cliche heart of a champion thing where you know their pride will kick in and they don't want to see this season go to waste as defending champs because that, that'd just be kind of strange to be honest and, and so I do think that they'll if they keep this team together I still think they're a top three or four seed in the east that can win around and depending on how matchups go maybe even sneak their way all the way to the conference finals but you're not contending for a title with this team and that's just what to me actually makes them maybe the most fascinating team in the league because there's upside there in terms of making noise in the playoffs but there's also a path to an immediate rebuild there if they jettison some of these guys out of town and, and looking towards the future. So it's a very strange spot for the defending champions to be in, but that's what happens when, for the first time ever, the reigning finals MVP will be playing on another team. Yeah, I mean, I have nothing else to add to that. I, I think they should try and make a run at it because, you know, there was ample evidence last year that they were still a very, very good team, even when Kawhi Leonard didn't play. Uh, losing Danny Green, I think, makes that more difficult. Uh, for all the reasons I mentioned, um, I think they're going to miss his defense at the two spot. They don't have anybody else who has his sort of like off-ball gravity. I mean, that guy shot 45% from three last year on a really high volume of attempts. They don't have anyone who can step into that role. Um, 
but if Norman Powell can give you like 70% of that and, you know, they bring in Matt Thomas, who's like one of the best shooters outside of the NBA coming over from Europe, who will presumably be just a specialist off of the bench. Maybe they can cobble together enough to make up for his absence and basically be the team without Kawhi last year, uh, which was a team that went 17 and five. So we'll see. Yeah. And, and the thing there too is like Masai Ujiri knows very well, as well as anyone that the upside of keeping a good but not great team together is that at any moment you might be able to pounce on a disgruntled star or something like that that all of a sudden takes your good but not great team to an, another level. And I know there, you know, there aren't many Kawhi Leonard's in the world, and that's a big difference. But you know, who's to say the Raptors might not get in the mix for Bradley Beal at some point this season? And if they look like a 45 to 48, 49 win team and you add in a Beal in a wide open East, does that actually swing you into at least finals contention? No. <laughs> you, don't, you don't think a team with Siakam, Beal, one of Lowry, Gasol, like in this East would, would have them in contention to win the conference? I First of all, I just don't think they're going to be close enough to justify trading what it's well, going to yes. cost to get Beal. And I think given what they would have to give up to, to make that happen, I, I don't think that that's going to put them on that next level. Like, I think Beal is really good, but... I mean, I, we, we got to see what Siakam looks like next season, right. you know, and if he just comes storming out of the gates as like a 24, 25 point a game scorer who is still giving you that elite multi-positional defense, then that changes the equation. But as of now, to me, he still looks like a really excellent number two option and a guy who might struggle a little bit as a number one option until we see that he can he can do a little bit more off the dribble as far as, you know, like pull up jump shooting and, and hitting above the break threes. And um, I mean, they're going to rely on him to soak up a ton of possessions. And until we see what he looks like doing that full time, uh, I'm going to hold off judging this team and how close they might be. All right. You, you mentioned that they probably won't be close enough to justify a move like that. We're going to stay in the East. I know we started with two LA teams, but we're going to stay in the East before we go out West uh, later in the show. So let's, let's go to the two teams that we, I think, can agree are the two teams that the Raptors and the rest of the East probably will not be close to this year. <clears throat> Let's start with Milwaukee, a team that won 60 games last year. They lose Brogdon. Um, they keep Lopez and Middleton. They also keep George Hill. <clears throat> they bring in Robin Lopez. and uh, They and signed West, Wesley Matthews, Wesley Matthews for the And Thanas- Thanasis Antetokounmpo yes. with their eyes on 2021 and keeping Giannis <laughs> happy. But no, for real. I think losing Brogdon's big. I still think this is probably the class of the East. But... Um, I don't know. To me, like when you're in that finals slash championship contention, losing Brogdon, even if it only amounts to one or two wins over the course of the year, like the margins are so slim. And we saw that throughout this playoffs. And that might come back to bite them. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you look at what Brogdon did for them in the playoffs when Eric Bledsoe just completely fell off a cliff um, and just all the different things that he provides for them. I mean, he is not really elite at any one thing unless you you know consider just like straight line drives to the hoop an elite skill, which I guess he could, but he's just good at everything. You know, a good defender, a solid ball handler, a good passer. I mean, a very, very good set shooter, um, especially on wide open shots. Um, but, you know, he just like, he, he gave you a little bit of everything and... That you, you know, they don't really have anybody who can replace that. Like, can they replace it in the aggregate? I guess that's what they're trying to do, right? They get Matthews, who I think is a really good fit. And to get him on the minimum is a coup because he can still defend. 
Um, you know, not as well as he once could, but, you know, he's a, a solid option to stick on opposing twos or threes. And all they really need him to do is, is like, be able to space out and, and knock down threes, which is something he has proven very capable of over the last, you know, over his entire career, really. So I think that's, they had, to me, a perfectly acceptable offseason. I understand them not wanting to go deep into the tax, although I would be frustrated as a Bucks fan knowing how close they were last year, their unwillingness to do so. But I think, given that they lost Brogdon, I think they rebounded relatively well. And to me, honestly, like keeping Lopez <coughs> might have been even more important because uh, they they just weren't going to have any way to replace what he gave them. They're like, I remember, you know, a month back, I was basically looking at this free agent crop and and trying to figure out which free agents might be able to replicate some fraction of what he did as far as rim protection and three-point shooting. And it was four guys, and none of them... It was like Dwayne Dedman, Noah Vonley. Um, I can't even remember who else. But it was four guys who, who really didn't even come close to They're doing what Lopez in, did. In his class. It was just... You could see maybe the outline of them doing something similar. I think keeping him was really, really important. I completely agree. And honestly, you know, from a, from a basketball perspective, I don't have much to add that we haven't already said about this team. But I will say this, and you know, th- this is going to make the Bucks fascinating. Whether it's right or wrong is, you know, kind of irrelevant at this point. We know just from being in the game, the vultures are going to be circling from a media perspective when it comes to Giannis because of the way the nature of the league is right, like in today's age. Yeah, he's not a free agent until twenty twenty one, but they can offer him the max super max extension next summer. And mm-hmm. if he doesn't accept that, obviously, just like Kawhi Leonard wasn't going to accept it in San Antonio with a year left on his contract, it kickstarts trade talks, it kickstarts a bunch of drama that the Bucks do not want any part of. Right. So they're gonna be fascinating from that perspective. Because even though I do believe in this team and I think they could very well win the championship next season, again, you just never know. Injuries, this and that, chemistry, you know. If they're 9-7 and seven for some reason after 16 games and Giannis has like one bout of frustration on the sidelines, again, those vultures will be circling. And I don't mean vultures like rival executives, but the media and just doing their jobs, you know, asking the important que- like questions mm. that we all wonder. That's what I'm interested in is, is seeing kind of how they handle it, how Giannis handles it. Because he hasn't really had to deal with that yet in his career. Is there a potential that that maybe derails a season or is this team immune to that? That, that to me, is a million-dollar question. Yeah, I mean, they have by far the best player in the conference. So that, to me, is, you know, given that they still have, I think, a really strong supporting cast and one that fits really well around him, I just can't knock them out of that top spot. And I would probably give them favorite status in the East. Although, I mean, we talked about this on the last pod as well. Like, I think Philly might match up with them really well in the playoff series. But... um I mean, a lot of pressure on Eric Bledsoe now, too. Uh, and if he no-shows in the playoffs again, that is going to be pretty crippling for Milwaukee. And, you know, they sort of have a similar problem to Toronto, albeit, you know, they have Giannis, so it mitigates it quite a lot. But, um, you know, their their depth at shooting guard has, has taken quite a hit. And I know, you know, Middle, Middleton can obviously play the two quite effectively, um, but Brogdon soaked up a ton of minutes at the two last year. And behind Middleton, it's like, you know, Wesley Matthews and Sterling Brown and not much else. So um, we'll see. Uh, I think, you know, their ball handling has obviously taken a little bit of a hit. And it's just going to put a little bit more pressure on everybody as a result. All right, let's move on to Philly then. This is the other team in the East that has actual legitimate title aspirations this season. I was mentioning in our post-Kawhi 
pod that I think Milwaukee will finish with a better record. I think they're more built for the regular season. I think their roster makes a little more sense uh, functionally. And I still worry about the offensive fit with this Philly team. But they're just so damn big. And I think they can be so damn good defensively. And even though Giannis would be the best player between the two teams, I think Philly wins out in total star talent and kind of like potential playoff game changers. And so I think it might be a case where like Toronto last year, I could see Philly finishing behind the Bucks in the standings, but then beating them in a playoff series. And I know that's just a weird thing to even try to predict, you know, it's months before up. the regular yeah. season starts. But that's kind of my thoughts on it. What are yours? More or less the same. I think they can be special defensively. I mean, this to me, I wouldn't be shocked if they were the best defensive team in the league next year. But I, like, I worry just about like who is creating offense, especially off the dribble, you know, and how much of their offense are they running through Joel Embiid in the post? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, he's a very good post scorer, but I just think like even that is it's asking a lot of him, you know, especially just given how kind of busted down he looked at the end of last season and, and what they'd be asking of him and the toll that's going to take. You know, how much can they trust a guy like Tobias Harris or even Josh Richardson to be sort of a primary creator? Um, somebody who is orchestrating pick and rolls. I mean, what is Ben Simmons doing for you in the half court? Are you using him as a point guard or are you using him as a forward, as a screen setter, as a cutter and a dive man? Uh, I just think there are so many question marks on the offensive end of the floor that, I mean, and, and this is why, to me, it's tough to put them ahead of Milwaukee right now because I know what Milwaukee is going to look like next year. I know how they're going to play. I know how their pieces fit together. I know that that formula works. And I know they ran into a wall in the playoffs last year, but they were still, you know, a hair's breadth away from being up 3 nothing in the conference finals. Like, I think they were way closer to winning a championship this past season than anybody really, you know, is willing to give them credit for right now. So, and yes, the Brogdon loss is big, but uh, I just think, like, they have such a clarity of vision and purpose, and the Sixers right now, to me, are lacking that. And obviously that will come into focus over the course of the season, but... As we look ahead right now, I think there's just still a lot of fuzziness where Philly is concerned. Agreed. Let's stay in the Atlantic Division. The once Titanic Division, no longer. It's probably got the most star talent. Not probably. It easily has the most star talent in the East. Kevin Durant will not play for the Nets this season. At least we don't think so. Um, but the Nets are returning. You know, most of what was a pretty like pesky, scrappy young team that won, I don't even remember how many games now, but made the playoffs. Pretty competitive for the most part, even though they lost in five games to the Sixers in the playoffs. And they're essentially taking that team and replacing D'Angelo Russell with Kyrie Irving for this year. What does that team look like to you? What is that? What does that mean from a, you know, marginally? How many more wins are we talking? How deep into the playoffs can last year's Nets, but with Kyrie in for D'Angelo go? Second round. Um, May, like maybe not even that. I mean, that to me just looks like a forty-five to forty-seven win team if they stay healthy. And you know, a lot of that can change. Uh, you know, how does Karis Levert look? Um, I mean, look, they they've got really really good guards, right? Like between Kyrie Levert, Spencer Dinwiddie, that's a really solid guard core. And You'd hope that any combination of those guys can play together effectively, whether it's you know Kyrie and Dinwiddie together uh, or Kyrie and Levert together. 
having multiple ball handlers on the floor. All of those guys, I think, are really solid finishers at the rim. Um, Dinwiddie and Kyrie are excellent off the dribble shooters. And, and for Levert, I think that's the question that he has to answer. Like, is that jump shot going to be there for him? But that's three that three attacking guards who can handle the ball, who can finish at the rim, and who you'd hope um, you know can all shoot it. So I think you know their backcourt is set. Uh, it's like, what about what about the rest of the roster? Like, how good is Jared Allen going to be this year? Like, how many minutes are they going to feel compelled to play DeAndre Jordan because of the money that they just paid him? And who is stepping up for them on the wing? You know, their their wing core to me is pretty thin right now. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite problem of what we talked about with teams like kind of Milwaukee and Toronto. Like, guard play is not an issue for this team. Um, production from like the wing spot and even their big men will be an issue. <clears throat> I think that as much as obviously Kyrie replacing D'Angelo is a big story, I do think the development of their young guys is another big story. And yeah, if Karis LeVert, Jared Allen, Spencer Dinwiddie just continue to develop on the trajectory they're on right now, I think if you couple that development with the upgrade from D'Angelo Russell to Kyrie Irving, and look, I know that like numbers-wise, it's not this insane difference, but they are on different planets in terms of just overall quality as guards uh, in the NBA. Like, D'Angelo Russell is a nice player. Last year was a nice player that was like a borderline all-star, mm-hmm. you know, coming out of the East. Kyrie Irving is, at his best, a transcendent type of talent, and I, I do think that will make a difference. I, I think the Nets... I agree with you. I can't see them all of a sudden jumping to like 50 plus wins and a juggernaut and a real title contender with this team. But I do think there is a path there, especially if one of the Bucks or Sixers do stumble, that there is like an opening maybe to get all the way to the conference finals and really set the table for Durant coming back. Because man, that would be something. Like if this team wins in the neighborhood of 50 games, gets to the conference finals in an East that looks like really no one's going to run away with it in the next few years. And then you add Kevin Durant to that, that like that's just scary. Yeah, absolutely. I just it's hard for me to see it happening right now. And the the big question I have is like so they have like a a couple interesting players on the wing. They have they got Torian Prince um who has shown flashes of being sort of an interesting player who can score in a variety of ways. But it's like let's say they go up against a team with like a power wing, right? Like obviously Kawhi is not in the conference anymore, but a, a player like Kawhi who is guarding that guy? Right, like Hollis Jefferson is out the door, Damari Carroll is out the door. It's like Prince, Joe Harris. I was just saying, Joe like, Harris ain't guarding anybody. Yeah, so they don't have that guy, right? Who's going to take on that defensive assignment? Um, and I guess that is what, 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 like, what would be my biggest concern right now. Um, and and then just uh, obviously, you know, this to me is secondary, but you you do have to consider like what the sort of cultural fit is going to be with Kyrie Irving in, in a new environment and, you know, without, I don't want to say like Durant would be a moderating influence on him necessarily, but I think ultimately we expect this is going to be Durant's team. So what is this year going to look like with Durant not playing at all? How is Kyrie going to handle that? And how is he going to fit in and be embraced by his new teammates? All important questions, and one that I think the Boston Celtics would have a very clear answer to. That's where we're going next, is Boston. They lose Kyrie Irving, Al Horford, and Terry Rozier, and the only real replacement is Kemba Walker. Obviously a pretty good one, but still. Um, I just don't think this team came close to replacing the talent it lost. 
no offense to Rozier, but not really Rozier. It's it's Kyrie and Horford, obviously. And even Horford, like, Horford somehow, he he had a not great year last year. He, he rebounded towards the end of the year, but I, I think he did lose a step last year. But yet he remained, to me, one of the more underrated guys in the league in terms of just on-court impact. I still don't necessarily think people really fully grasp what he meant to that team. Losing him is big. And going from Kyrie to Kemba, I do think is a bit of a downgrade, as great as Kemba was last year. Going from Horford to Cantor is a way, way, oh way like, bigger downgrade than going from, from Kemba I, to Kyrie. I don't, like that's, I don't know how this team's going to stop anybody. Um, again, offensively, look, if, if you believe in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown having you know bounce back years in the wake of Kyrie's disruptive chemistry gone out the door, but like barring that, and even then, like even if Tatum and Brown take nice steps forward and Kemba is just who he is, like I yeah, they'll score and they'll be like a nice solid team, but I I just don't see like I talked about Brooklyn, I can at least see a path for them into this kind of like semi contender status. I don't see it for this Celtics team. I think they'll be a slightly above five hundred team that makes the playoffs, but I don't even see that path to quasi contention for them. I mean, it's the Jason Tatum leap, right? That's the path to me. Uh and I would still worry about their front court and, you know, per, like presumably starting Ennis Cantor. Again, like you said, that's going to leave them pretty vulnerable defensively. I don't think they're going to like be a train wreck defensively. I don't, I'm not saying how are they going to stop anybody? I mean, they still have Marcus Smart, you know, one of the best perimeter defenders in the league. Jalen Brown is an excellent wing defender. Um, and, you know, Kemba might struggle, but you know, again, he he's a guy who's going to give maximum effort at that end of the floor, and obviously his size makes it difficult for him, but I don't think he's as poor a defender as some people make him out to be. Uh, I just think, you know, the big question, obviously, is in the middle, and to me, you know, that leads to the next question, which is, do they make uh, an in-season trade to try and upgrade that spot? And um, I think, you know, one guy to potentially keep an eye on there is Marc Gasol. If, wow. if you know, that's a move the Raptors feel prepared to make if they want to move on from him and try and get some value in return before he hits unrestricted free agency. The Celtics are a team that I could see being really, really interested. See, that would, it fits like functionally. <clears throat> I'd understand the move for this roster. I would not understand that from Danny Ainge's perspective. Cause like, what would he give up for an expiring Mark Gasol on a Celtics team that isn't going to contend for a title anyway, when he wouldn't really give anything up for real stars when the Celtics were on the verge of potentially winning a title. Like, I completely agree with you that I think it would fit. I just mm-hmm. don't, I wouldn't be able to reconcile like how Danny Ainge makes that move given the moves he didn't make the last couple of years. Well, there's one very obvious answer. It's a salary that basically matches up, um, not quite equivalently, but it matches up very nicely. And that is Gordon Hayward. And... You know, he has two years left on his deal. So assuming the Raptors are willing to take that on for the next two years, they're still flexible for the summer of 2021. And, you know, we've talked about next year's free agent class and how uninspiring it is. I think their priority is going to be being lean for 2021 and not necessarily 2020. And if they can pull in a draft asset from Boston along with Hayward, I think they'd be willing to do it. And I think given that Boston is sort of already set in the backcourt and on the wing, you know, given their massive hole in the front court, that might be a swap that's worth it for them if they feel like they're close enough to pull the trigger. Yeah, I mean, that does make sense. I I just, I don't like this team. <laughs> okay. I, no, I don't mean I don't mean that in a personal way. I mean, like, roster-wise. Like, I don't... Yeah, that's fair. I, I, like, I see teams putting Kemba Walker and Enes Cantor in the pick and roll, and I shudder. 
Yeah, well, again, I, I think that they have a chance to be better offensively than they were last season. I actually expect them to be. They also lost Marcus Morris, by the way. That's yeah. not a counter to your point. It's just no. It's I, another, I it's another I, big I loss. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. Um, but again, just sort of like it was last year, uh, I think the big swing factor here is Hayward and whether being an, a, you know, a year removed from that injury or another year removed, uh, he can get back to something resembling the player that he was before. And if that's the case, that totally changes the outlook of this team. Agreed. One team left to get to in the Atlantic Division. Um, honestly, like forget they, they shouldn't even be in the Atlantic Division. They shouldn't be in the NBA in general this year. This <laughs> roster is a dumpster fire. The New York Knicks. Swing and miss on all the big free agents. Mm-hmm. Again. Mm-hmm. Spend their money. I wouldn't say recklessly because it wasn't reckless, but not wisely. I think we could like Julius Randle, whatever. You're taking a flyer on him. I, I think even though he's a terrible defender, he's got value in some of the things he does. Bobby Portis at like 15.1 million. Portis actually had a decent underrated year last year and maybe they do see upside there, but it's, you know, if, if he has a big year, then he's just going to cost. Well, he's on a team option for 15. Well, that's the thing, after. right? So, so I think that part of the reason those contracts were a little bit bloated for, I mean, basically everybody they signed, they got a team option on the last year. And I think what they bought with the extra money that I think it took to sign those deals was the optionality. And if one of those guys pops, even one of them, whether it's Portis, whether it's Randall, whether it's Alfred Payton, uh, they can pick you, up that you don't team. Think Taj Gibson can still pop. Well, I mean, Taj Gibson, that's <laughs> that, a, that, a head, that was a sarcastic. I know. I know. It's a head scratcher to me because I mean, maybe it's just, they believe that having like a, a stabilizing veteran presence in the locker room and, and Taj Gibson has basically been beloved everywhere. He's gone, uh, an extremely respected vet, Maybe they just think that that's going to be helpful for all the young guys that, that they're going to have. But um, that's the one where I'm like, I just don't really get what the upside play is here. But with these other guys who are flawed, uh, but still maybe have some room to develop. Again, like one of them pops, you can pick up that option and then you have their bird rights and, and the option to potentially re-sign them in a couple of years. It's just I, like this was a team... I think that should have been looking to take a swing on somebody like D'Angelo Russell. And maybe that just wasn't available to them. And it's impossible to make these kind of judgments without knowing what was available. But with these guys who you're expecting to basically cycle out, I don't know how many of them, if any, you really expect to be part of the next competitive Knicks team, or if there even is another competitive Knicks team anywhere down the road. But you look two years down the line and... Is their situation any different than it was this summer? Are they just trying to lure marquee free agents with cap space that doesn't mean anything because they'd be joining a completely barren roster? A lot of that depends on R.J. Barrett, who you know hasn't looked great in summer league so far, and, and maybe that's telling and maybe it isn't. But that is basically their one hope, I think, of having somebody on the roster that can be a draw for free agents in a couple of years. Yeah, look, I think... You mentioned that maybe they should have taken a flyer on someone like D'Angelo Russell. They also should have been in the mix to take on bad contracts yes. to pick up draft picks. Like, they could have been stockpiling assets for the future and taking on bad, shortish term contracts. Dude, the, the Clippers meantime- got a first round pick for taking on Mo Harkless. Exactly. So, like, Mo Harkless can help a team and. 
you know, or Igadala, right? And those are guys that you can even potentially flip again yeah. for another asset. Because let me tell you something. Reggie Bullock and Taj Gibson, and I, I do understand that Taj Gibson is like a veteran leader that teams and coaches love, but Reggie Bullock and Taj Gibson making like 20, a combined $20 million a year, you could have found two guys who might even be able to give you more than that, you know, in terms of production for around $20 million and taking them on and probably gotten a draft pick out of it instead of just lavishing free agents with that money that aren't going to make a difference to your team, wins and losses-wise or future-wise. So, again, it's just it's this vicious cycle of incompetence for the Knicks where they can't seem to get out of their own way. They swing and miss on free agents. They do nothing in the meantime to like make a case to free agents that their team is worth coming to. And then when they strike out, instead of kind of pivoting and going back to square one and figuring out how they can kind of plot the future through the draft and through all these, like they just, they don't see, I don't know that they don't see it. They don't accept it, whatever the case may be. But yeah, if RJ Barrett, you know, is the kind of player people thought he could be about a year ago, then sure, the Knicks might have something. But barring that, even if RJ Barrett is just like a good, solid, borderline all-star, there is not enough here to really like foster a winning environment around that. And I don't understand, like, we, we now have evidence over, I don't know how many years that the Knicks have had max cap space with big free agents out there. There's evidence that the lure of MSG is a myth, okay? <laughs> the lure of the Knicks brand is a myth. There's another team in New York that is now a bigger deal than they yeah. are. Like, well, look, it's a myth until it isn't, you know, until a player decides that they want to be the, the player that revives the Knicks brand and... I think that will happen at a certain point in time. I really do. And I think, you know, all this talk about how market doesn't matter and like, you know, if a team is run functionally, that's more important. Maybe that is more true than it used to be. But at the end of the day, I mean, like, look what happened with the Lakers, right? They, they currently have LeBron James and Anthony Davis on that team. And they, they have those players for no other reason than they are the Los Angeles Lakers. If, if that team had the personnel that it had, and the the people running it that are currently running it but existed in Minnesota or Charlotte they do not have LeBron James LeBron James is not signing there and Anthony Davis is not forcing his way there so this stuff still does matter but there, obviously there has to be some baseline of competency there that the Knicks haven't yet shown and something as simple as like being willing to use their cap space as a dumping ground for bad contracts that net them an asset in return they've always just sort of acted like they're above it and like, oh, we're the Knicks. This is not what we do. This is not how we spend our cap space. That's something for small market teams to do. Well, no, like the Nets use that strategy, you know, to build up their asset base. The Clippers did exactly that in taking on Harkless's deal. Guess what? They used the pick that they got just for taking on Mo Harkless to go and get Paul George. And now they have more Har Mo Harkless who's going to help them next year. And it's just like it's just big picture thinking that the Knicks have typically you know not been able to conjure up. Let's let's move to the Central. We've already talked about the Bucks. Um, the only other team in the division that I think not necessarily a title contender, but has a chance for that maybe like three four seed and to make a run in the playoffs is Indiana. Without Oladipo, I think this team's range is very wide. Um, I could see them, yeah, competing for that three seed, um, being a solid like two way team. And then I could also look at that roster, especially without Oladipo, and be like, maybe like a seven seed. That's just a, like one and done in the playoffs again. 
you have been a Pacers guy for the last year or so. You've you've liked what they've done in general. Let's say Oladipo comes back around a year from when he suffered the injury, which I think was January? In that? February. February, maybe, yeah. yeah. So the so, same is about half the season. What do you see for the Pacers? Um, yeah, without him, it's going to be tough. And I mean, the, the biggest issue and... I you know I think a lot of us knew this from the moment he got injured. They just do not have enough off the dribble creation without him, and and that's still the case. I mean Brogdon helps that a lot. Even Jeremy Lamb you know can do a little bit of stuff off the dribble. C.J. Warren too. Like I know he was kind of a looter in, in a riot in Phoenix, but yeah. he can create. He can like create for himself off the dribble. He can score. If he's like your third option, I, I think that's fine. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, to me, their offense without Oladipo is going to struggle, even even with Brogdon and Lamb in there. Uh, it probably won't struggle to the same extent it did last season. But defensively, I think this team got worse, you know, losing Thaddeus Young, a guy who, you know, we we're talking about the Nets problem and who's going to guard these sort of like big scoring wings. I think the Pacers are going to have that exact same problem. And, and the great thing about Thad was that he could guard those guys, but he could also slide up and guard like brutish power forwards. Uh, he gave them a ton of versatility, and he was excellent playing the passing lanes. Like He was such a big part of what made their defense so good last year. Uh, that defense thrived on creating turnovers. Uh, Oladipo is a big part of that and will help when he gets back, but Thaddeus Young was also a huge part of that, and it's going to be more difficult to do it without him. Their back line is really solid with Sabonis uh, and Miles Turner, obviously, but um, on the perimeter, they're just not nearly as good. So without having an elite defense, which carried them through so much of last year, you know, can they scrounge together enough offense? Can they basically remain afloat until Oladipo comes back? And when Oladipo comes back, is he at 100%? Is he, you know, are they going to be ready to sort of take off right away? Because I think long-term, I love the fit of Brogdon and Oladipo. I think this team, you know, next year, if they go into that season with, with Oladipo ready to rock, could be very, very good. Um, and it's just a question of, you know, where are they at in the standings when he comes back? And from there, I mean, is he playing at the level that he played at last season and the season before? For me, um, because because I do think he'll miss, you know, at least half the season, and that probably would derail them from really contending in the East this season. For me, the big question for the Pacers this year is, what do they do with the Sabonis-Turner combo? Because I, I think they are going to make a move there at some point. And can they turn one of those guys into a better fitting 3-4 type player that mm-hmm. does fit with the rest of the core. And if they can do that, and if they manage that situation well, and they go into next season with Brogdon, Oladipo, maybe even Warren, or a 3-4 from the trade of one of Turner Sabonis, and then still having one of Turner Sabonis, now I think you are actually looking at a team that's built pretty well to compete in the East, like maybe even on the top level. So for me, more than more than how they perform this season, I think the the barometer for how they manage this season will be what they made of the Turner Sabonis front court in terms of what they turned it into. And I think this season the experiment is just going to be: Can these guys play together? Can Sabonis hold up playing big minutes at the four? Um, and uh, you know the evidence is it's kind of mixed. You know those lineups again have been great defensively and have really struggled offensively, and the sample hasn't been huge either. You know, it's not been as big as it's going to presumably be this season, so that will tell, I think, a little bit of a different story. 
Um, Sabonis' defense to me has improved quite a bit. Like even over the course of last season, I think it improved quite a bit. But if he's just spending the majority of his time chasing stretch fours out on the perimeter, I don't know if that's necessarily like the best use of him at the defensive end. And, you know, it's just tough. I mean, they could stagger those guys, right? To the point that they're both playing 30 plus minutes a game and only say like 12 minutes of those are overlapping. Um, but then are they finding any minutes for like their, their new center, uh, Goga Bitadze, the guy who, who they just drafted and who is sliding up to play the four when, you know, one of those guys is the lone big man on the floor. Is it TJ Warren? Is it like Doug McDermott? I don't know. Like, is it TJ Leaf? Like they don't have a ton of depth at the four spot either. Um, so a lot of question marks for them, but again, like they, they do have some flexibility as far as what they can do, you know, if they decide to trade one of those guys. Uh, obviously, either one of them would be a fantastic trade chip. I think Aaron Holiday has an interesting season ahead of him, too, because, I mean, he might be their starting point guard. Like, maybe they want to start Brogdon at the one, but Brogdon has been... He's played at least half of his minutes at the two throughout his career. So, is Aaron Holiday the guy who's starting at the point? And, like, I, I know they believe in him. Uh, so, he's got a pretty interesting season ahead. If you want to hear a depressing uh, point guard situation in terms of whether there's a debate... Imagine in 2019, your point guard debate might be, who do you start, Derrick Rose or Reggie Jackson? Oh, no. <laughs> That's the question facing Dwayne Casey and the Detroit Pistons. This uh, team is, if they're interesting, they're interesting for all the wrong reasons. Um, I don't yeah. think, I think they're going to be very bad defensively because Andre Drummond's probably the only like good defender in their starting lineup. Their top two scorers are probably going to be Blake Griffin and Derrick Rose again in 2019. I don't know, maybe they scrap out like 38 wins and just get the eighth seed again because the East is that bad. But even, I don't know. I Do not bet against a Dwayne Casey coach right, team. In the regular the season, yeah. He, he, will, he will find a way to yeah. maximize every regular season game and credit him for that. But I yeah, mean, the other thing is they, they finished top 10 in defensive efficiency last season with more or less the same roster. So um, you plug in Derrick Rose for even like 20 to 25 minutes a night, and I think your defense takes a hit. Maybe so, but I think, first of all, Dwayne Casey's scheme has been really effective, uh, particularly at limiting opponents' three-point attempts. The Raptors in his last season coaching there, I think, were number one or at least top two in opponent three-point attempt rate, and the Pistons were were top two last season in that category as well. So we'll see. Um, to me, I, I just, like, the offensive fit has never really worked um, between Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond. Um, obviously, you mentioned their point guard situation, which is not great. And probably the most interesting thing about this team is um, Siku Dumboya, uh, the guy they drafted who, uh, you know, everybody's pretty excited about. He's got some athleticism, and uh, he might be a bit raw, but he's got a lot of upside. So, you know, if there's a reason to watch this team and something that might be exciting about them, uh, there's that. And, and also Bruce Brown, who I think quietly had a really good defensive season as a rookie last year. We're going to keep going through uh, some pretty ugly teams in the Central here. But we're let's going to just, roll through them. Let's, let's just rip through them. Yeah, let's rip through these like 30 seconds each. The Chicago Bulls. I've seen some people and even some projection models have the Bulls as like a potential playoff team. I get there is like some weird offensive talent they could cobble together here. Otto Porter looked pretty good for them when he got there. And I still think that was a good move for them to pick him up. So you're looking at Zach Levine, Otto Porter, Thad Young, which is a nice pickup. And then, yeah, Markinen. Wendell Carter. You know what? I just talked myself into this team not being good. But like, if we were just talking about the Pistons maybe being able to scratch out 38 wins and, and stealing that eight seed, I just talked myself into the Bulls maybe being able to do it too. 
I don't know. I, I wouldn't pick them to make the playoffs, but they could be like a scrappy 10 seed, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, can they can they hang a banner? Can they hang a scrappy, scrappy 10, 10 seed, seed banner? banner? Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, but no, I, I think Thad is really going to stabilize their defense, which is something they desperately needed. And honestly, after they got Otto Porter at the trade deadline, they were like borderline competent last season. And I think... Borderline competent. Hang that banner next to the scrappy 10 seed banner. No, okay, but what like what are you looking to do like while you sort of groom these young players to take over the team, right? I I think Markinen has a ton of upside. He may never be a plus defender, but he's shown some feistiness at that end of the floor. And I think just his offensive tools are really tantalizing how he can shoot the ball, he can put it on the floor. Um so I'm high on him, and we'll see basically whether I guess his long-term position is the five or the four. But um, they could, you know, have an interesting front court rotation between him and Wendell Carter and Thaddeus Young. Obviously, the one vet and the two young guys, but uh, they're they're all sort of like interchangeable. Can all play with each other in different front court combinations, and I think that'll be interesting. And with Porter there to basically space out at the three. You know, I, I think that is a, an interesting front court. It's just, you know, their backcourt is the big question mark, and their point guard situation is also not particularly great. And that is contingent on Kobe White, and does he jump off the page as a rookie? I, I, you know, I don't think his impact is going to be that immediate, um, but we'll see whether he looks like a long-term fit, um, given how his rookie season goes. But obviously, you know, Chris Dunn hasn't been the answer there. Sadoransky... I like Sadoransky, but I don't think he's anybody's idea of like a franchise point guard. No. So, um, all right. The only thing I'm going to say about the Cavs is free Kevin Love. I don't. I don't I see think, a path to 20 wins for this team. They're terrible. Clearly, they will once again be relying on the draft lottery, as they always seem to be when they don't have LeBron James. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Love could swing a wide open title chase that we've been talking about, right? Like if there's a a team maybe that over the course of the season realizes there may be like a second or third scoring option away from being legit contenders, a stretch four away from being contenders. Kevin Love could be that the guy that, that swings the title race. I mean, can we finally get him to Portland yeah, after all these years of yeah. speculation? Like they need a four something fierce. Like they desperately, desperately need a power forward and uh, he would be a great fit. I'd have to, I mean, we can look at their cap sheet and see what they would have to send out to make that work. But um yeah, and I think Cleveland will try and swing a trade for Kevin Love. I think they would love to do that just, you know, because he doesn't fit their timetable and they'd love to pull in an asset if they can. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if there is an appetizing deal out there for them to make. Um, I mean, for Cleveland, it's like we're, we're looking at their young backcourt, right, and what they're going to do this season. Darius Garland, Colin Sexton, Kevin Porter Jr., um, you know, is one of those guys going to pop? And then is that going to come at the expense of the other one or the other two? Um, and then does one of those guys become a trade chip? Like how, how is it going to work? I mean, they're going to be a, a catastrophe defensively is something I can say with a lot of confidence, but uh, a lot of people around the league are really high on Darius Garland. So we'll see what he looks like as a rookie. We're going to the Southeast and we're going to Jimmy Butler's new team on South beach, the Miami heat. I, I've said I don't think they'll necessarily be much better from a wins and losses perspective by just plugging Jimmy Butler in right now. I do think, however, getting star one in South Beach with max cap space in a couple of years was very important. I do think it could be the beginning of something special in Miami again, depending on how Pat Riley can maneuver things. But for right now, I look at this team. Jimmy Butler, Goran Dragic, James Johnson, Justin Winslow, Kelly Olynyk, Myers Leonard, 
Bam Adebayo, even Dion Waiters, like in this East, I don't know. I could see it being a disaster in some respects if they go in with too high expectations. Like if Jimmy Butler, who is obviously notoriously known as a borderline insane competitor, even within his own team, if he's expecting that he's going to go there and this team is going to be like a quasi contender, then yeah, there could be disastrous results because wake up call, they're not. But with the right expectations, this is a team that I think if everything bounces their way, could could contend for potentially a top four or five seed and maybe win a round. Like, once you get past Milwaukee and Philly, Jimmy Butler would probably be the best player in a playoff series against most of these teams. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, honestly, is he the third best player in the conference right be. now? Yeah. Um, wow, that's kind of sad. It <laughs> is. I, I almost just, like, noticed that as I was saying it, and I was like, yeah, wow, all right, the Heat aren't that good, but I don't know. Would you be shocked if they're in the second round? No, I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, like it's like you said. I think there there are two clear cut favorites in the conference, and then everybody else is sort of masked in this large tier too. Um, I would put the Heat at the bottom of that, you know, massive second tier. But you know, things could could go right for them, and they could find themselves in the second round. Um, I just I love Bam Adebayo, and I think I mean they shipped out Whiteside, like they're handing that starting center spot to bam and basically telling him to to go and prove it and i think he's capable he just does so many things that you would ask of a modern center i mean he rebounds he can pass uh he has quick feet he can switch a bit um you know he doesn't really have like the shooting touch but apart from that he does pretty much anything i think you know at the defensive end and and just um, you know, like his ability to do a bunch of different things offensively to make up for his lack of shooting, make him a really valuable piece. And I'm really interested to see how he plays with Butler um, and what he looks like in year three. The Hawks, um, who for me were one of the more interesting teams going into the offseason. I actually said at the end of the year, we did a piece about lottery teams that could jump into the playoff mix next year. And I had the Hawks in there because I really liked uh, what we saw from the Trey Young, John Collins combo as the year went on. Uh, I think Pierce is a good coach. They had some cap space. I, I just thought they were on the cusp of breaking into a pretty depressing East playoff race. I don't think they had the offseason I thought they would. And that's fine. They didn't have to spend that, you know, cap money stupidly, that cap space stupidly. Um, they didn't have to make a big move right now. I think they can just continue to develop with Trey Young and John Collins. What, they got Chandler Parsons, bro. What are you talking about? <laughs> they also got Evan Turner and Alan Crabb. Yeah, what am I talking about? They had a big offseason. But no, I think, look, I think, I think the Hawks are fine. I think they'll still be a pretty bad team but exciting with with Young and Collins. And, you know, if lottery luck bounces their way, you know, come next May, assuming they're not in the playoff race, I think, I still think they're set up for the future pretty well um, with a good young head coach and a sound front office. And I kind of think that's all we need to say about them. Like, it's okay that a team this early in a rebuild didn't make a move to jump into the playoff mix. Yeah, and I think, I don't know what DeAndre Hunter is going to be, but... I do think sort of packaging their multiple picks to jump up to number four in the draft was a smart move just because they weren't going to have room to develop all those draft picks, right? And I think for a team like that in their position where the expectations are still pretty low and they have time, it's not a bad idea to basically say, like, we're going to take a swing and try and jump up and take a chance on a guy we really believe in. Um, And I think, you know, if he becomes the player they think he can be, they have a pretty solid compliment on the wing for Trey Young and John Collins. Um, I think defensively this team is going to suck. 
Like they're again, like they're just. I don't think they have much hope of stopping anybody, but uh, they could be really solid offensively, and they were toward the tail end of last season. And that that Trey Young John Collins pick and roll was pretty damn effective. It was. Uh, and again, I, I do think they could be fun. One team that was fun last year and finally got into the playoff mix and then kind of re-sign everybody and are running it back, which I don't know if it was the right choice, the Orlando Magic. Um, Vucevic got paid. Terrence Ross got paid. They bring in Al Farouk Aminu. Um, I don't know. I, I think this is still a solid playoff team in the East. Um, we saw what Cliff, Steve Clifford could do with them last year. And look, I understand, you know, Orlando's a smaller market team. <clears throat> they finally broke through and made the playoffs. They seemed like they were building something kind of exciting there. You can't just give up on that. And so I understand the temptation to run it back. And who knows, maybe along the way they find a trade that balances out their roster better. And that actually does take them up one notch in the East pecking order. But for right now, the way I look at it is the Magic just kind of locked themselves into like a five to nine seed for the next couple of years and I don't know how I feel about that yeah um I mean their roster balance just continues to be totally askew and I wonder how many of these moves they made with an eye toward potentially making a trade that is going to balance out their roster because you look at it and it's like they have they locked in Vucevic at center when you know they have Mo Bamba who they picked fifth overall a year ago uh, basically who can only play that one position. You know, this is a, he, he's a guy who is a, a stone cold five and nothing else. So what happens there um, over the next four years? Then at the four, I mean, you have, to my mind, at least three players who that's their best position with Aaron Gordon, Jonathan Isaac, and Al Farouk Aminu. And then in the backcourt, like DJ Augustine is still their starting point guard. I don't know what they are going to get from Markel Fultz. I don't know if they know what they're going to get from Markel Fultz. We don't even know if he's going to play a game. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just so far, obviously, one of the weirder career arcs that you could possibly expect. Um, And then the guy they draft, uh, Chuma Okiki. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But another guy whose best position profiles basically at, at power forward. So... They're really just creating all these log jams in the front court while not really addressing their big backcourt concerns. And I just have to wonder whether they're gearing up to potentially make a trade and, and land one of these point guards, whether it is Russell Westbrook, uh, whether it's Kyle Lowry. Um, any one of these guys, I think, you know, if, if they can deal some of that front court depth for you know, a stabilizing point guard, I actually think they'll be in pretty good shape. Um, because Vucevic was fantastic last season. Um, Aaron Gordon, I mean, to me, he just seems like the logical trade chip for them to use because I I feel like they think that Isaac is really their future at that position, and Gordon is on this nice descending uh, contract that's going to be really easy to move, and he has a a lot of tools, like his athleticism um, and his ability to defend multiple positions, I think will be appealing to a lot of different teams around the league. Um, I mean, one thing I posited actually when when the Warriors acquired D'Angelo Russell and we were talking about whether they would turn around and flip him uh, on December 15th, I think think Gordon would be a great fit in Golden State and I think Russell could be a great fit in Orlando. 
So maybe we see a move like that happen. But as of now, yeah, their roster balance is just totally out of whack. Well, here's a Southeast Division team with a uh, point guard they're trying to move. Not exactly a stabilizing force, though. John Wall, Washington Wizards. <laughs> yeah, <Dude>. the Wizards <laughs> are very depressing. John Wall, we don't know how many games, if any, he's going to play this season coming off another injury. But he'll be making $38.2 million in the first year of a four-year contract that will see him have a $47.4 million player option in 2022-2023. The only thing of value on this Wizards team is Bradley Beal. If they move him, they kickstart the rebuild in earnest. If they don't, they're still a bad team that I don't think can even be in the playoff mix, even with Beal at his best. They're just not good. Like, you go through this roster... I, I don't see any path to even playoff contention for this team, even with another all-star year from Beal. I I just don't see how they can get through the season without trading him. I, I know they said they don't want to, but I, he's not going to sign an extension with them. And if he does, that's insane. Because look look at the roster around him. I mean, I, is there a more depressing roster in the league right now? Charlotte. We're going to get to them. Yeah, I guess. But, but it's almost... It's almost less depressing for Charlotte just because they don't ha- like they don't. They're at have- least not. Yeah, they're not tethered to a guy like John Wall. Exactly, like and and they don't have a star like Beal who is you know going to get disgruntled by being surrounded by a bunch of people who are unworthy of his talents. Like you know the Hornets at least. Like I think they probably go into the season knowing they're going to be really bad. Everybody sort of has a chance to grow together, and and all the young guys will have opportunities to show what they can do. For the Wizards, it's like Beal and I, I, I don't even know what. It's Rui Hachimura, CJ Miles, Mo Wagner, uh, Isaiah Thomas, Ish Smith. It's, it's rough. Um, and I just think ultimately their hand is going to be forced. I, I know they don't want to trade him. I've said all through last season that they shouldn't trade him and he should be the guy they're building around. But then, you know, with that injury to Wall torpedoing whatever trade value he might have had, which was already pretty minimal, uh, I just think I think they got to move on from Beal and, and make this a full scale rebuild, and and just hope that there is enough of a market for him that they can create a bidding war and and leverage that into a, a decent package. I mentioned that we were going to mention Charlotte. They're okay, going to we, be the. We've mentioned them. They're going to be the worst <laughs> team in the league. There you go. We've mentioned them. Yeah, twenty nineteen. In the year of our Lord, 2019, <laughs> an NBA team's three highest paid players will be Nicholas Batum, Terry Rozier, and Bismack Biombo. Unless you have anything you want to add, I don't think we need to go beyond that. No, I think, you know, for the, ne- the next couple of years, they're just trying to get through these, right? Uh, and along the way, I think they hope that maybe Rozier can, can pop. Uh, and that maybe Malik, Malik Monk can show a little bit more than he's shown in his first couple of seasons. Um, I think they probably have a lot of high hopes for Miles Bridges. And if they like, if if there's anyone on that roster that could be considered something close to a blue chipper, Miles Bridges is it. Um, he's super super athletic. Uh, he showed last year he could hit the three at you know at least an average rate. Um, he has the tools to be a solid, solid defender. Um, he's the guy, I think, that they're going to be looking at and being like, okay, can you take that next step? Can you be the guy we build around? Um, and and that's really all they need to happen, right? Like, there are no expectations for this team um, aside from that they're going to be in the running to land a top four pick. 
What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. We're going to move west. The The only two Western Conference teams we've talked about so far are the two LA teams, so let's stick with the Pacific Division. And we talked about them a lot. We talked about the move for Russell. We talked about the injuries and losing KD and all that. And I have one question to ask you about the Warriors, and I want your take on it. If Clay Thompson gets back, with even a couple months before the playoffs. Basically, if they can get into the playoffs and Clay Thompson's healthy and they're relatively healthy overall, can this version of the Warriors in this NBA, as wide open as it is, win the 2020 championship? I believe they can. Yes, I think so too. Um, I mean, we've seen what what a trio of Steph, Clay, and Draymond is capable of. I think re-signing Looney... You know, steal of a deal for five million dollars a year was massive, uh, and I said this at the time. You know, when they made that trade, you know, sign and trade that hard capped them. I believe they had about thirteen million dollars under the hard cap for about six roster spots, and so to my mind, Looney was one hundred percent gone, and somehow they found a way to bring him back, and then they go and they get Willie Cauley Stein. For the minimum. And suddenly, you know, I I thought they were completely screwed at the center spot. But, you know, I think now they have two very solid options there. And Cauley Stein is far from a a perfect player. He's pretty unpolished. But, you know, he's got a decent in-between game. Like, he's got a nice little floater. um, And he can do some things for you offensively. But also, you know, defensively, he can can switch a little bit. Uh, He can protect the rim. I think, you know, as a backup center, that's a pretty solid get. And, and they bring Looney back, who was so important to the success last year. Um, and again, a guy who, who can switch a little bit, um, a really solid screener, uh, a good dive man, and somebody you know who I think is going to play well with Steph Curry. I, yeah, I mean, I mean, it all comes down to Clay, right? And when does he come back and how close to full health is he when he does come back? Uh, because you know that trio surrounded by a decent supporting cast can obviously do a lot of things. And I know they're considerably older than they were last time, you know, they made a championship run together, but uh, I still believe they're capable of doing it in a league that looks as wide open as it is right now. And I, I mean, the other question, I guess, is what do they do with Russell? You know, do they look to flip him? And while Clay Thompson is out, is the fit with Curry that poor that they sort of fall back and are out of the running for like a high playoff seat by the time Clay returns? A Pacific Division team that I don't think can contend for a title, but I am very intrigued by are the Sacramento Kings, who finally, after like a decade and a half in the wilderness, did look like they were putting something maybe special together last year. I don't like the way they spent money in free agency, but I'll also say this. The 2020 free agent class is a gong show. Um, the Kings probably weren't attracting any anyone anyway. They haven't given up any of the young guys who did pop last year, and they still ha- are projected to have max cap space in 2021 anyway. So I, even though they maybe didn't spend their money wisely this summer... I also don't think they necessarily like damaged their future in any way. And I look at it, and this team with Darren Fox, 
and Buddy Heald and Bogdan Bogdanovich and Marvin Bagley and Harrison Barnes, who is now over is still overpaid, but they have all those guys. You had like Trevor Ariza and Corey Joseph and Dwayne Dedman. I, I actually think that's that's a pretty solid team, you know, and and guys like Ariza and Kojo are very respected vets who are good locker room guys too, which is good for the young guys. So again, maybe maybe they didn't spend their money as wisely as some hoped given the year they finally had last year. I think this could be a very solid team. Heck, if this team was in the East, we might be talking about them in that mix with all those other teams in that like three to eight, nine, ten. Like, I think they're good. It's just, again, they're in the West and they probably won't make the playoffs. But don't sleep on the Kings because I think there is something there. No, I mean, I agree. I don't like how they spent their money this offseason, but that doesn't mean that they didn't get better. Uh, and... I think, you know, you're talking about they didn't damage their long-term outlook. I think giving, giving Barnes four guaranteed years at, you know, over $20 million per uh, does damage that a bit. Uh, I just don't love his fit there. But I, I think Deadman is a good fit. I think Corey Joseph is a good fit. And look, I think they're doing the right thing, which is uh, building around De'Aaron Fox, who was just magnificent in the second year, I think is going to continue to get better. And, you know, they put solid defenders around him and guys who can shoot. Um, I mean, Corey Joseph, the shooting is maybe a bit tenuous, but uh, I actually think those two can play in a backcourt together just because Kojo is, uh, you know, very capable of guarding twos. And maybe they play in some lineups where they're small and they bump Buddy Heald up to the three uh, and just play super, super fast, which obviously they did last season. Um, I think they're going to be pretty interesting. Uh, And I like the Deadman fit too. You know, a guy who... Look, the Kings were great in transition last year where they really struggled was with their half-court offense. So when you're looking at this, I I guess, you know, what I'm looking at and what I'm thinking is, did they do anything to improve their half-court offense? And I think having a guy like Deadman who can space the floor will definitely help a lot um, because they didn't really have that. I mean, they have uh, Nemanja Bialita who could do that for them last season, but then he was sort of competing for minutes with Marvin Bagley as well. Um I don't know. I mean, we'll just have to see. Like, I, the West is so crowded right now that I can't really pencil this team into a playoff spot. Um, but I, I think there's still enough reason for excitement, and obviously that starts with the Aaron Fox and Buddy Heald. We've talked plenty about how the Suns don't know what the hell they're doing. Um, their offseason confuses me. I actually, giving Ricky Rubio $51 million, say what you will about it, I actually do think he's the type of stabilizing force at point guard, guys like Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton need at least in the short term. I still think the team and the organization is a bit of a clown show. Um, a bit. A bit, yeah. And and their future remains murky. So I'll ask you this one question, and then we can rip through the Suns because I don't think we need to waste much time on them. And it's a very depressing question. In a Western Conference this loaded, with this roster and this management team, do the Phoenix Suns win 25 games for the first time in five years? 25, just 25. No. Yeah, I'm sticking with that. Can we move on? Sure. All right. <laughs> Let's go to the Southwest Division. Should we Should we just pour one out quickly for uh, the Josh Jackson era? Oof. And the Wolf. Dragon Bender era. Back-to-back years, Wolf. number four overall picks. And both of them are gone for nothing. They had to attach assets to get also, rid of like, Josh Jackson. They got rid of Melton in that deal, too. And I actually like Melton. Like, th- th- these are the kinds of things, again, they might not seem you know, massive at the time. And then you look back in a couple of years and it's like, wait, why did the Suns give up on that guy? Why did they throw him in that deal? Why did they have to give up picks to also give up that guy? It's like these things add up over the years and that's why you end up in a situation where you might go half a decade without even winning 25 games. 
It's pretty impressive. It is. Um, all right, Southwest Division. The Houston Rockets. Apparently, Chris Paul and James Harden hate each other, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because neither one of them is going anywhere. It doesn't seem like anyway. Um, I, I, Daryl Morey said they're going to start the season with those two guys there. I believe that will be the case. They bring back mostly the same team. Look, they can hate each other all they want. If Chris Paul can regain what he lost last year, I mean, I think that's the big question because if Chris Paul can get back anywhere close to what he was two years ago, this team can very well win the championship. If Chris Paul is just straight up on the decline now and this is what we can expect from him and he's not going to be able to stay healthy again Mm -hmm. um, and last year is the beginning of the end for him, then I don't think this team can win the championship. How many players Chris Paul's age with that number of miles on his body have we seen reverse a decline? I don't think that's going to happen. Now, he is still an excellent player. uh, And I think if he can play at the level he played at last season while staying healthier than he did last season, the Rockets, to me, have as good a chance as anybody of coming out of the West. James Harden is that good. Um, P.J. Tucker is that good at what he does. I still think, you know... Like, Clint Capella, I know his stock took a serious hit in the playoffs, but he is still just, like, such a good fit with this roster. Um, and just, like, catching lobs from Harden, and, like, you know, he's still able to protect the rim. I know, like, one of the weird things was that the Rockets were worse uh, at rebounding the ball when he was on the floor last year, and defensive rebounding was, like, a big issue for them. So hopefully that's something that he can clean up. But I just think... I think he is like he's become almost undervalued just because it seemed like he was overrated and then people sort of realized last year that he maybe wasn't the player that he'd been made out to be and so his stock took such a hit that he became underappreciated. I still think he's a really solid player and a great fit uh, next to Paul and Harden and this team is just still going to be so so good offensively. Um, Eric Gordon is another player who I just absolutely love and as a secondary ball handler I think works there extremely well. I mean, we, we've seen the formula before, and there's no reason it's not going to work again, right? James Harden operating an offense surrounded by shooters with one elite dive man is going to be one of the three best offenses in the league. And the question for me is just what happens on the other end of the floor. A team with similar questions, or with, without the transcendent superstar, the, the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with them on the, <clears throat> the defensive end of the floor, but I will say this. Um, steps from Lonnie Walker... A healthy DeJounte Murray, Derek White. I do think there is potentially something bubbling beneath the surface there with those guys um, as two-way youngsters. The Spurs lose Bertans, which I actually think was was kind of a big deal that not enough people made made a big deal of. I know you did on Twitter. I did as well. But we both love the guy, and, and I think he was key for the Spurs last year. And I think He's he could awesome. have been again next year. Yeah. Um, they add Marcus Morris and Damari Carroll. I... I, yeah, they'll be a solid playoff team probably again, but I don't think the Spurs, even in a wide-open West and a wide-open title chase, even with Greg Popovich and DeRozan and Aldridge and whatever and the young guys I mentioned, I don't think the Spurs are actually in that wide-open title chase. Agree or disagree? I don't think they're in the title chase. I agree with that. Um, but, I, you know, I wouldn't rule them out of the playoff race. And if, if Murray is the player that the Spurs, you know, would have everybody believe he was ready to be last season before he tore his ACL... Well, then, you know, that changes this team's ceiling considerably. And obviously the big question there is his jump shot. Uh, you know, the Spurs were basically telling everyone who would listen last year that he was ready to break out as a shooter. 
And given the success that the Spurs have had, turning guys into shooters, Chip England maybe like better than anybody in the league at his job uh, has obviously had a you know a massive track record of success in that department. They they need that from him just because there is such a paucity of shooting on this roster, um, and they're looking at starting a lineup. I mean, they started Aldridge and Pirtle a lot together last year. If they do that again, they're looking at starting a lineup with Pirtle, Aldridge, DeRozan, Murray, and Derek White. Maybe. I mean, that is like there are zero significant shooting threats in that lineup. Um, they need somebody to be able to shoot the ball and stretch the floor a little bit. Somehow they still cobbled together a top six offense last year. I think they'll be worse offensively this coming season, but better defensively. So uh, we'll see about that. But again, I didn't like them getting rid of Bertans. And they basically did it so that they could execute a sign and trade for Damari Carroll while also having room to use the mid-level exception on Marcus Morris. I like adding Morris um, because he gives them the shooting uh, w- without you know sacrificing their defensive versatility. But to effectively swap out Bertans for Carroll is something that I just will not understand because Bertans was one of the best shooters in the league last year. Yeah, agreed. Um, a fascinating team, I think, will be the Dallas Mavericks. We haven't seen Kristaps Porzingis on the court in like a year and a half by the time he, he gets in there. And the last time we saw him, obviously, he was in a Knicks uniform. If Porzingis is anything near what he was the last time we saw him on an NBA court, and you add that to what Luka Doncic already is, and you throw in DeLon Wright, um, you throw in Seth Curry shooting, even if it's like 10 to 12 minutes a game, um, whatever Boban gives you. I think this team could be good, man. And it's, again, I, I don't think they're in that mix. Yeah. Like To find good. In the West? Low 40s wins. Okay. Yeah, I mean... Which I, think- which I think is good. If you can win, like, 43, 44 games, as mediocre as that sounds, if you can do it in this Western Conference, I think that's a good team. I have a hard time seeing them making the playoffs. I think... You know, they come into this this, this offseason with max cap space, and it was just so easy to dream on what they could use it on. Because, you know, given, like, with, with Doncic and Porzingis, I just feel like it's so easy to fit any kind of player around those two guys. It could have been, you know, a stretch big like Al Horford um, who can help them defensively, but also basically space out around their pick and rolls and make some plays himself. It could have been a point guard like Kemba Walker who could play on or off the ball um, and basically work in tandem with Doncic running the offense. I mean, there were so many different possibilities. And, you know, what they end up with is not bad. I really like DeLon Wright. I like the fit. Um, I think, you know, Seth Curry's shooting is something they really needed. But I like Dwight Powell. Four years guaranteed, I think, was a little much. Yeah. I mean, his his advanced metrics were off the charts last season. Um, they obviously believe in him and... Um, you know, he declined his player option so that he could sign this extension. So uh, we'll hope that works out for them. I mean, Maxi Kleba is another guy who I think is pretty underrated um, and, you know, was a huge piece of their their dominant second unit last year. So uh, bringing him back is nice. I just, I don't know. I mean, so much def- depends on Porzingis. And the way that he was playing before he got injured with the Knicks um, two seasons ago, this was a guy who was putting up you know, what, 25 points a game. Um, and he was doing it while shooting extremely well. Uh, he was doing it while creating a little bit with the ball in his hands. And he was also kind of a monster at the defensive end. Um, and that's just going to be the biggest thing, I think. Like, is his lateral mobility going to be compromised at all? Because at that size, 
it's already so difficult, I think, to kind of slide your feet and stay in front of guys and do more than just sort of hang back and protect the rim. And his ability to do that was what made him so valuable defensively. And, like, can he still do that? Um, or, you know, has, has this knee injury sort of sapped some of that lateral quickness? The New Orleans Pelicans are a fascinating team. Man, they, they could be good right away. Um, if Zion is the rookie of the year that we assume he will be, Drew Holiday remains the player he is. Um, you throw in J.J. Redick. You throw in Derek Favors. You throw in all the Lakers guys who, again, they, they don't have to take monumental steps. Um, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram. Like, you start going down the line. They added uh, Niccolo Melli, his Melli, who is a good Italian shooter. I don't think he'll factor in that much, but they just needed shooting desperately, and getting him and Redick is obviously good. Mm-hmm. Um you start looking at this roster, and it's like they're like 10, 11, 12 deep in legitimate NBA rotation caliber players. And sure, they don't have the superstar yet at the top of the roster, but a lot of people believe Zion will grow into that guy fairly quickly. In one summer, David Griffin took a team that should have been reeling from losing one superstar and instead has them on the cusp of something special. Do you think this is a playoff team? And what do you think the upper limits, what's the ceiling for this team this year? I think the ceiling is like a low playoff seed and, you know, something like 45 wins, um, which I think would be amazing. And regardless of whether they make the playoffs this year, I just think this is an excellently constructed sort of accelerated rebuild. Um, I, I don't love the fit of some of the guys around Zion just because I still don't think there's enough shooting there. Now, you know, for that reason, I thought the J.J. Redding, Redick signing was almost perfect. Um, he's just going to be so effective running around uh, and playing off of Zion. Uh, and, and, like, they needed the spacing that he's going to provide so desperately. But, um, you know, what's it going to look like with Giroux and Lonzo playing together in the backcourt? Um, and, and basically, what is the division of labor going to be? You know, who is soaking up the most on-ball touches here? Is Zion playing primarily on the ball or off the ball? You know, is Drew Holiday taking more of an off-ball role? Because, you know, his shooting fell off kind of sneakily last season, as good as he was in every other facet of the game. Like, he didn't shoot the ball particularly well. Uh, can Lonzo stay healthy? Can Brandon Ingram stay healthy? Can Brandon Ingram develop a viable jump shot? Um, it's just, uh, they have a lot of interesting lineup combinations, which is something I really like about this team, but there are also just so many question marks about this roster, and I think we really just kind of have to take a wait-and-see approach. But I do think that they have a ceiling that puts them in the playoffs, absolutely, because they should be very, very good defensively. You know, between Favors, Holiday, Lonzo, I mean, potentially even Zion, you know, if he comes in ready-made, like he could be a force defensively without a doubt. Uh, Josh Hart, you know, is pretty solid at that end of the floor. Like they got guys who can move, who can switch, uh, who can defend multiple positions. I think it's going to be a really interesting team and going to be a really fun team. Like one of the teams... League pass favorite. Absolutely. Like one of the teams I'm most looking forward to watching next year. Um, We'll end the Southwest with the team that I think will finish last in the division and one of the two teams in the West that I actually don't think have a shot at making the playoffs, and that's Memphis. But unlike Phoenix, Memphis went about it in a very different way. I think they had a very smart offseason. Um, they get rid of Mike Conley to really bring an end to the grit and grind era, but they'll enter the season with a potential franchise point guard in John Morant, Jaron Jackson Jr., who had a really nice rookie year and you know who a lot of people rightly believe in. Brandon Clark, who was a nice pickup at 23 in the draft. Um, we'll see what they make with Andre Godala and if they can turn him into future assets. They re-sign Jonas Valanciunas. I don't think this team's going to be good or anything close to good, but I think they'll be fun. And if this summer has been any indication, the front office has a clear plan and they're going about it in a very sound way and they are building for the future well. 
Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that. I mean, uh, I think they they brought back Valanciunas at a really reasonable number. I didn't love them letting Delon Wright go. Um, I just thought they probably should have worked harder to keep him because I think you know, even if they didn't see him as like a starting point guard, like his ability to play either guard spot and like you know, even if he's coming off the bench, he can still give you twenty solid minutes because he can play the backup one or he can also slide up to the two. And I think he gives you a lot of defensive versatility. And I think, you know, the deal that he got from Dallas, three years, $29 million, I the Grizzlies, you know, should have been interested in matching that, basically. Uh, so, so I didn't love that piece of business. But pretty much everything else this offseason that they did, I loved. Uh, I thought they had a great draft night getting John Morant and Brandon Clark. Uh, I think, you know, they're going to be faster and more fun and more explosive than we've seen this team uh, be maybe in its entire history, frankly. Uh, a team that's historically played pretty plodding, slow, muddy basketball. Um, again, I, I don't know that there's enough shooting on this team right now, uh, sort of similar to the Pelicans, but without a guy like Redick to kind of open things up. But uh, they have a lot of young, really intriguing players that I'm going to be excited to watch play. Yeah, uh, surrounding Ja with a big combo of Jackson, Valanciunas, and Clark, is, it's going to make for a lot of dunks and a lot of lobs, and that'll be fun. Okay, we're going to finish with the Northwest Division. The number two seed from last season, the Denver Nuggets, didn't do much in the offseason. They didn't have to. Um, they they add Jeremy Grant, which is yeah, it's fine. I think, I think that's I love solid. it. Yeah, I think that's a solid move for them. I think it's a great move. Yeah. Um, I think he fits what they needed. They returned most of the same team that won, I don't even remember how many games last season, 54, 55? 54, yeah. Yeah, and had the two seed, a wide open West. They're right there, man. They they don't have the, the, the total star talent of the two LA teams, but... Jokic should very well be a, an MVP candidate again. They're a good two-way team. They've got shooting. They've got it all. Can, can you see this team? Like, maybe winning a title? <laughs> I mean, I guess on paper, you have to say yes. Um, they, to me, like, they just haven't done it, right? And so, even though I'm, I think, you, like, on paper, they're probably more talented than a team like the Rockets... I'm just sort of inclined to have more belief in Houston because they have just so much more veteran talent and guys who have sort of been through it. And with Denver, it's just like, maybe I just have to see them do it before I fully believe. But I love the Jeremy Grant addition. Uh, I think he makes them more versatile defensively. The fact that he shot 39% from three-point range last year is huge. And he's also just like a really good cutter who I think is going to play off of Jokic really well. And one thing that sort of allows them to do potentially is to maybe deal Paul Millsap. And if like, they don't really have a traditional point guard, right? Um, Jamal Murray to me offensively is more of a two and that's fine because Jokic controls so much of their offense and Murray is so good playing off of Jokic, you know, whether it's inverted pick and rolls, dribble handoffs, cuts, it's a perfect fit. But I think in the playoffs, something they sort of ran into is like at the end of games, Jokic, I don't know if he has enough of that off-the-bounce juice um, to be the guy who is basically controlling the ball and, and and running the offense every time down the floor. So do they want to bring in a point guard? And if so, like would they consider, say, dealing Millsap plus an asset for Kyle Lowry or for Chris Paul? I think that's the kind of move that maybe could put them over the top because apart from that, I just think the roster fits together so nicely. Jokic is unbelievable. Like, you know, one of the five best offensive talents in the league, in my opinion. And 
And I think uh, Grant gives them the ability, you know, to, to be a little bit more fluid and better defensively. And this is a team that somehow, despite, you know, having some defensive liabilities on the floor, still managed to put a top 10 defense out there last season. If there is a team that I think um, is going to, or at least is in position to make the all-in move Toronto made, and I'm not saying for Kawhi Leonard, but even something like the Gasol move at the deadline. If there's mm-hmm. a team in that position to me, it's the Nuggets. Yeah. Well, who's the guy? Bradley Beal or? Because like, is like I don't see like the, the moves that I just threw out there, like you know Lowry or Chris Paul. Like I don't know if that's an all-in move to me. Uh, so, okay, all-in maybe is the, is the wrong word, but uh, push them over the top move. Right. If there's a team that's like in the in the title mix, but maybe just like a hair below it, that. Yeah, a move for a guy like Lowry or even Chris Paul could push them over the top, and I think they're in position to make it. I, the Nuggets, to me, just like stand out as that team more than any other. Yeah. Um, now, another team in the the title chase, based on the offseason they had, the Utah Jazz. And in most years, we'd look at this roster and say, that's a really good team, but come on, they're not winning a title or even getting to the finals. And this year, in a year of parity, you could look at a team starting Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, Joe Ingles, Bojan Bogdanovic and Rudy Gobert and actually look at them as a potential title contender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the the balance and the depth on that team. Um, I think I mentioned this uh, like on our, our other sort of free agent uh, winners and losers pod that I, I consider them a winner, but I, I'm really concerned about their lack of depth at the four. And I don't know. I mean, presumably they're going to bump up Bogdanovich to play there a bit. Ingles will probably spend some time at the four. I just don't know like if that's going to be viable over the course of the season, um, particularly defensively. So I, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe maybe they'll add one um, at some point, you know, over the course of the season. But for now, uh, you know, their lack of forward depth is a bit of a concern. But uh, this is a really nice team that I think improved itself offensively a great deal. And it's still going to be very stout defensively, if maybe not quite as good as they've been the last couple of years, because I think favors was a huge part of that. To me, it's like this is a team that could go out and win like 57, 58 games in the regular season and then run into a top heavy team like the Lakers in the playoffs and sort of get cute storied, you know? Yep. No, that's exactly how I see it, too. All right. We've got three teams left in about five minutes. So let's do this quickly. Um, OKC just that. I mean, what can you say? They they went from having the guy who finished third in the MVP race locked up for the next few years on Friday afternoon, Friday night, to waking up Saturday morning with that guy gone and in the midst of a clear rebuild, quite frankly. Um, you know what? I think we might be able to add OKC to the Memphis and Phoenix. Not that they're going to be that bad, but to the tier of actually they probably are not in this Western Conference playoff mix. Yeah, even if they don't make any subsequent moves, I just have a really tough time seeing them make the playoffs. And especially after trading Grant, uh, I I love Gallo. Uh, he had a phenomenal season last year, but I think you know to the Thunder probably he's a trade chip first and foremost. And I don't know if they're going to be able to find a landing spot for Russell Westbrook, but I think their priority right now is to trade him as well. I, you know, I don't think they're going into this season with really any intention of trying to chase a playoff spot, and if they do, it will only be because they couldn't find viable trades for Gallo and Westbrook, and you know, they had no other choice but to run it back. But I think they're very clearly in asset accumulation mode right now, 
And to their credit, they have accumulated a ton of assets. But at the same time, you know, a lot of those assets right now project, project to be at like the back end of the first round. And um, like I said, you know, a couple of days ago, they're looking at uh, what could ultimately be a fruitful, fruitful rebuild, but one that um, is going to take a while uh, to sort of start to bear fruit. Yeah. And, you know, I was mentioning Kevin Love as a kind of like stretch for who could swing the title race. Gallo, obviously not on that, not on Kevin Love's level. Don't get me wrong, but you know, he's been that guy for a few years now that I've been hoping does get dealt to a contender by the mm-hmm. trade deadline. And, and this year, especially, I really do believe that he could be one of those guys that helps swing the title chase if the right team yeah. uh, bets on him. And for the Thunder, I don't think, you know, his value is never going to be higher no. because he's on an expiring deal and he's coming off his best season, probably. Yeah, maybe best or second best, but he was a borderline all-star. And he stayed healthy, yeah. you know, for the first time in forever. So... Uh, if there's a time to deal him and actually get value, now is it. Yeah. Um, Portland. We know the story with the Blazers. Dame and CJ carry them to 45 to 50 wins. Um, they're always a feel-good story. And you'd figure that if they were doing that when there were, you know, clearly superior teams in the West and in the league, then this year, when there isn't really a clearly superior team in the league, that that same kind of formula should put them in the mix I'm not a big Hassan Whiteside fan. I think you know that. Him and, I guess we'll have to see when Nurkic gets back, but if he gets back this season, I think having both of them is kind of strange. They're still going to be fine with Damon CJ, but it's weird to say because I'm the guy who last year told you uh, not to sleep on the Blazers because they would find their way to like almost 50 wins. And now in a more balanced league, I'm the guy saying that I actually don't see it for them in a wide open West. Yeah, I mean, this is another team that... I just like don't really know what they're gonna do with the four. They they lost every single basically like large like combo forward that they had uh, from Aminu to Harkless to Jake Lehman, um, and now it's like they're looking at I think playing Zach Collins big minutes at power forward, and I don't love that. Um, I actually didn't mind the Whiteside move, you know, aside from the fact that they did lose Harkless, who I think was you know quietly a pretty important part of their playoff run last year, but. This is a team that made the conference finals with Ennis Cantor at center. Um, and I think, you know, Whiteside is definitely a downgrade offensively, but defensively it's an upgrade. You know, even though I think he is not quite as good defensively as the numbers, you know, the, the raw numbers say that he is. Um, I don't mind that for them. And I do think it's a decent stopgap until Nurkic comes back. I also really like them swapping out Evan Turner for Kent Bazemore. Like, I just think that's such a better fit for them and a guy who can actually space the floor on the wing. Um, it's just, you know, it's a question of what they're going to do at power forward. And can they swing a Kevin Love trade that I think would actually put them in pretty good position to join that, that or Gallo <laughs> or Gallo. Yeah. I mean, so I don't know. I, I'm interested to see what this team does. And I think obviously, as long as they have Lillard and McCollum in the backcourt, they're going to be a competitive team. Uh, and I actually, you know, I don't mind this roster. Uh, Nurkic was just such a huge part of their success last season. And, and obviously him getting back and when he gets back and what he looks like when he does is going to be, you know, such a big part of, of what their projection looks like going forward. But I don't hate any of the moves they made. Last one. Let's keep it real quick. Minnesota. I entered the studio today thinking Minnesota was one of 13, 12 or 13 teams that I thought at the very least, I could see, if everything breaks right, them competing for a playoff spot in the West. 
just as we've run through all the teams in the West and how many good teams there are, and I look at this Timberwolves roster, and again, sure, if this is the Wiggins year, then all of a sudden a Towns Wiggins duo, they've got something that, man, it, it's not going to be the Wiggins year, okay? We know what Andrew Wiggins is as an NBA player. I know he's young, but he's also got years under his belt now in the NBA. We would have seen something, okay, if he was going to pop into superstar territory, and we clearly haven't. Towns had an awesome year transcendent offensive big man, but there's just not enough here for this team to compete for a playoff spot in this Western Conference. Agree or disagree? Agree. And I mean, to me, the clock is already ticking on Carl Anthony Towns. And I know like he basically just started his extension, but like they don't have a ton of flexibility here. And especially if they can't get off of that Wiggins contract, which I do think is going to be pretty difficult to do. I don't know how they meaningfully improve this roster. And I know they're probably going to be in the mix, you know, when when D'Angelo Russell becomes eligible to be traded, if the Warriors are interested in flipping him. The Wolves, who were very aggressively pursuing him in restricted free agency, are going to be, you know, at the top of the list of teams that are trying to get into the mix and get him. But I just don't even know if that is really going to meaningfully bump up their ceiling. Um, it's just, they're not in a great spot right now. And it's just really disappointing, obviously, because... Towns has the potential, I think, to be a transcendent big man, um, and he's just not in a great situation right now. And part of that's on him, frankly. I mean, like, you know, his his inability to really develop his game at the defensive end of the floor um, and his passivity and the times that he's sort of drifted in and out, um, I mean, some of that is on him. Yep, but, ask Jimmy Butler about that. Yeah. <laughs> but... You know, at the same time, uh, I just you know I, I just don't think that they have enough flexibility right now to improve the roster around them to the point that they're going to be a playoff team. All right, that does it for us. We've got ninety minutes. Um, hope everyone enjoys this mega NBA offseason podcast. We'll be back maybe this week if something goes down. If not, probably early next week. Until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock. <laughs>